room to improve, but we did it. I've always wanted to sing that song. Okay, uh, Ellie Hubbard, I think you are our scripture reader today. This is on your bulletin. She had to learn a very difficult word to pronounce, and I believe she is going to pronounce it correctly today. So let her rip. <laughs> the gospel according to Mark. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon for her daughter, from her daughter. Since she was Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, first I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. Jesus left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Ten Towns. A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him, and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so he could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears, then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, which means be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. And then a little bit from James, please. And then the gospel according to James. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. All right, time out. That's so perfect. no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I am bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, 
takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Thank you, Ellie. Very good. Even got some bonus text in there, so I appreciate that. Very good. So I want to nerd out with you a little bit uh, on these two texts, and I want to talk about some application. My application stuff isn't all that profound, uh, but I hope it's real. Um, I'm telling myself a little bit here. First on the nerd out, uh, so we need to spend some time because there's some very interesting dynamics happening in this text. So in this Mark text, you have Jesus who is going about 60-ish miles north of where he did most of his stuff around the Sea of Galilee, and he's going up to what we would now call the coast of Lebanon on the Mediterranean Sea in Tyre and Sidon. First, he starts in Tyre. So we're outside of Israel now. We're outside of Jewish areas. That means that the overwhelming majority of people who are in Tyre are non-Jewish people. They're Gentile people. Jesus is going up there probably to get away for a break. Uh, because he's been going hard at it for a long time in his home region. He's well known as a teacher and a healer, and it's been constant for him. And he needs to get away to where people don't know him and won't come after him and just let him rest. And so he goes up to Tyre, and wouldn't you know it, but here this woman finds out that he's in town. Somebody posted on Facebook or something, and now here she goes, finds out exactly what hotels he's in or whatever, and pleads to him. So this is a Gentile woman, a non-Jewish woman, who has heard of his renown and is choosing to go ask him because she's desperate. Her little girl is struggling. She says she's demon-possessed. That was kind of a general term that could have referenced all kinds of things, from mental illness to some physical issues that would cause convulsions and types of things. Uh, that, that all they could think of, because they know nothing else, is, is this has got to be a demon. And so she's pleading for her daughter's life. It's like whatever attitude or edge she might have toward Jewish people, because there was some, uh, whatever might have been there, whatever fear she might have had in talking to him, just kind of got overwhelmed by her compassion for her daughter. Love won the day on that. And so she comes. I'm sure she showed all the utmost respect that she could and asked that Jesus heal her daughter. And Jesus' response was, you think I'm going to throw this good stuff to the dogs? Make no mistake. If it sounds to you like he is being rude, you are correct. He was. Now, there were some scholars uh, for a period of time who wanted to keep Jesus so shiny and wonderful and Hallmark Channel-ish <laughs> that they tried to suggest that this language of dogs was really meant as um, a favorable term. Now, my, we're dog people in my family, and we loved our banjo and our chico. We would do anything for them. We spent crazy amounts of money keeping them well <laughs> until they were no longer with us. And when they left us, we were absolutely heartbreaking. We still grieve our dogs' passings. And so if that was the frame that Jesus was talking about, like, oh, Chico or Banjo, I'm, okay, then, then maybe the woman would be like, wow, I didn't know I rated so well. That, that's neat. But here's the thing. Modern scholars, conservative and progressive alike, when they look at the context of this, of this scene, when they look at the actual language structure and the response of the woman, they come to one conclusion, and that is that Jesus, in fact 
was rude. And to make it a little worse, because we're very aware of this in our culture, to use that term dogs, that was a racial slur. It was an ethnic slur. <laughs> Let that mess with you just for a moment. Because it should. Because the prevailing theology that we have in our day, in our world, is that Jesus was like Mary Poppins, just perfect in every way, could never do anything wrong at all. And yet here, in the earliest gospel account that we have, Jesus made a mistake. The cultural voices that were all around him came to the surface. I don't know the exact context here. Maybe Jesus was just finally, you know, fading off in a nap at that beautiful seaside hotel. Finally going to get some rest. And then there's the knock at the door. And it's not Peter who went out for burgers and brought back lunch, but it's some foreign woman who is interrupting his rest. Who knows? Maybe he was hungry and tired and stressed out. Maybe we see an example of Jesus just being not his best self. He's grumpy. I don't know if any of you have ever been grumpy, but I have. <laughs> and I assure you, when I'm grumpy, I am not my best self. And I say things and act in ways my tone is not, is not optimal. And the people around me usually know it. And I usually don't feel great about it afterwards. And usually I have to apologize in some, set, in some uh, circumstances. This is what we have. Now, just another little level of nerdiness, because you could be having a crisis of faith right now, uh, because you might be hearing me say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was sinless, and using a racial slur towards somebody when we thought that God loved everybody seems like sin to me. It seems like sin. And you're right. It is. It's sin with a with a lowercase s. It's an error of judgment that runs against shalom. Uh, one theologian said, sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom, meaning that we are culpable, we are guilty of disturbing shalom. In this instance right here, Jesus is disturbing the well-beingness of the moment and of that woman. So then you say, well, then should we throw the whole thing out because Jesus is supposed to be sinless, and if he died on the cross for our sins and he had to be a sinless lamb of God, then the whole thing's shot. Well, we need to talk about sin, capital S, because another way to think about that, if you're into substitutional atonement, the way to think about that is when Jesus was put on trial, he was done so unjustly. There was no justice in it. He was not guilty of the things they brought him up on trial. It was a totally framed thing. He was not treated justly. He was beaten beyond recognition and then crucified as capital um, execution, capital punishment in the worst possible way. All of it unjust. He was blameless, sinless of the crime he was being charged and convicted of. That's a way to generally understand that you can have two things happening at the same time. A very human Jesus and still blameless for the things that took his life. So the interesting thing as we go on here, and you can come to Praxis and talk about this uh, more or just set up an appointment with me. I'd be happy to talk this stuff through with you. But the interesting thing, after he throws this racial slur at her, how she reacted is actually how Jesus would normally react. 
So I just want you to think. I, I noticed that we have uh, a good, strong number of women here with us today. And I've heard that there are slurs that happen in culture that are targeted primarily toward women to uh, degrade and diminish uh, the power and strength of women in the world. Is that a true thing? Yes, okay. So uh, you who are women here, I want, you to, I want you to personalize this thing. And I want you to, to imagine that you've gone to this healer, this person who you're hoping is going to be able to help you, and you make your request, and the first thing he says to you is whatever slur is that you've experienced or heard of that is focused on women. Do you identify that? How do you feel at that moment? Mad, right. Do you want to do, do, you, do, you do business with this guy anymore? No, you don't. But her love of her child caused her to take breath and decided to respond. She didn't react. She didn't say, how dare you call me a dog? Do you, you even know how you're coming across? I thought you were supposed to be blah, 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 all this stuff. She doesn't do that at all. She actually responds, like I said, like Jesus would when he had similar things happen to him. She turns it on its head. Says, oh, you call me a dog. Mm. Want to react, want to react, want to react, want to react, but I'm going to choose to respond. So Jesus, if I'm a dog, I know that whenever there's a meal in public or in a family environment and a child lets some of his messiness flow over to the table, nobody has a problem with the dogs licking it up. If it's in the household or if it's out on the street, Nobody has a problem. The dog is actually welcome there to clean up the bits and pieces that fell off the table. So by extension, can I at least have some of the crumbs? So Jesus loses this argument. He has a racial slur. She turns it around, which is why he says to her, and you could just see, <laughs> you could just see things happening in Jesus' head. He knows he's been beaten here. He knows that he's been called on the carpet for doing a bad thing. He recognizes that she is right. She is, she is instructing him. I thought God loved everybody. Doesn't that include even me? She's teaching him this, which is why he says to her, Oh, that's a good answer. A fascinating thing about this, in other healing passages that you see with Jesus, when somebody comes and does something like this and they have this conversation, like the woman who touches his robe when it's super crowded and all that, and Jesus looks at her and says, your faith has healed you, go in peace. Or something like that. He does this many times. Your faith has healed you. He doesn't say that here. He says, good answer. Your good answer is what is bringing you healing. Not, not that it's transactional, because I don't think that's it. But just recognize what has transpired here. And I hope you can be okay with it. We sometimes get so distracted by the healing. Like, oh, wow, from a distance, Jesus healed this girl of whatever was troubling her. But the earliest audience who circulated this story and who first read it, that's not what they were freaking out about. Jesus healed people hundreds and hundreds of times innumerable times. What is freaking them out right now is Jesus was called on a racial slur by a person of the race he was slurring against who handled it well, who did better than he did, <laughs> and he took it, owned it, 
and grew from it. Which means Jesus actually was a real human being. Thank God. The other healing that you heard about here today with the, the guy that's um, deaf and can't speak might have been a little weird. You heard about fingers going into ears and spitting on his hands and putting it on his tongue. There's an interesting thing here. Again, I won't, luckily for you, I don't have any long expository thing after we nerd out for a moment, so you can rest assured on that and keep working on your communion because it's tricky. Okay, so what we see here is weird things. Why, is Jesus, why doesn't Jesus just say, okay, boo, you're healed and it's all good. Why do the ear thing? Why do the, spit, the gross, weird spit thing on your hand? Who wants to do that? Why does he do that? Well, he's or does that because he, Jesus, believes that this is a technique of healing and believes that this would be effective. So that's one possibility, or, or this could be both, or he believes that the guy needs to experience some kind of physical experience to know that something has happened. You know, a lot of times the rituals that we do, uh, even in our prayer life and other things, we do the rituals because they give us meaning. They help us look at things and own the things that have happened. The sacrifices of animals that happened way in the distant past, did God really need those animals to be sacrificed? No. The people needed to do something to recognize that something was happening in their relationship with God. The, tri the, the sacrifice was for the people's benefit, not God's. It gave them something tangible to look at. So if in antiquity, this guy, or even if Jesus thought that somehow touching the spot that needed to be healed was going to be more effective then Jesus is doing that. And there's this ancient thing that uh, floating around back in Jesus' day that uh, some, some people thought that firstborn sons who were particularly righteous, that their saliva had healing power. And so by spitting on his fingers and then putting that on the guy's tongue, that was a transaction of healing power. That's why there's this, uh, there's this uh, healing experience in John chapter 9 where Jesus spits in the dirt and makes a little loaf and then smears that on a blind guy's eyes. Same thing. So anyway, enough nerding out on that. So that kind of talks through that. And then James, the full passage of James, talks about how the same kind of issue is happening with the early church. So you had a group of people who were coming together and the rich were treated better than the poor. People who had uh, clout, people who were driving nicer cars, they were getting the better seats. They were getting better treatment all around than the people who didn't have uh, so much fortune and so much luck in their life. And James is simply saying to them, hey, stop that. What are you, what are you doing? Uh, and if anything, uh, start doing something with this faith that you say you have because faith without works is dead. A little historical nerd note, Martin Luther... Uh, who was responsible for the uh, Reformation, hated the book of James. Hated it because of this. Because Martin Luther loved Paul, who said, it's all grace, baby. It's all grace. We're a bunch of losers, and thank God for God's grace because it's, it's sufficient enough. You don't need to trust anything but God's grace. But here it appears that James is saying, nope, faith without works is dead. Do you even have faith if you don't have good works? As if you need to earn it somehow with your good works. The truth is, James and Paul are talking about two different things. Paul is right when he says faith without works is dead. Or, I mean, when he says your grace is sufficient. But James is also right when he says, if you're not doing anything with your faith, it's dead. It's really not doing much for you. And I think for some people that might be true, and maybe for some of us. 
Maybe you signed off on Jesus when you were a kid. And maybe that's the last time you signed off on Jesus. Maybe that's the last moment that you ever took Jesus seriously or following him. It was in fourth grade right before you were baptized like me. And you never really gave it a thought because your grandma told you that once saved, always saved, and so you're good to go. And so you did. Is that what it's all about? No. What James is saying is this whole thing of following Jesus, and this is one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, probably predates Paul, based on the theology that we see here. What James is saying here is, hey, this thing's supposed to be working out in your life. This kind of reminds us of a similar phrase in the Lord's Prayer, which we'll end with today, where it says, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, or forgive us our debts as we forgive us our, as debtors, or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And some people have taught this as a transaction, like God is not going to forgive us unless we do this. And some can read James the same way, like we're not really loved by God, we're not really graced by God unless we do our part first. That's not it. But I will tell you this, that when it comes to forgiveness and mercy and love, the more we love other people, the more we are opened up to the love of God. The more we get accustomed to forgiving other people and being merciful with people, the greater likelihood that we will actually believe and experience the forgiveness and love and grace and mercy of God beyond a cerebral intellectual level. It becomes experiential at that point. And the opposite is true as well. If you only believe in the grace and the love and the mercy of God, as this intellectual moment, this intellectual ascent, like, yep, okay, theologically, I believe this, I understand all this, God forgives. But you yourself fail, struggle to forgive, and actually hold on to unforgiveness, and are not merciful, not loving, not graceful toward other people, I already know that your experiential uh, knowing of the grace of God is severely limited. But the people who are loving, let me tell you, there's a huge difference. As I've uh, walked with many, many people in their last seasons of life, there is a massive difference between people who actually lived in love and grace and mercy and their hope for what's to come and their fearlessness for what's to come versus those who did not. If you live in love, if you open yourself to love, if you give away love, which cannot ever be exhausted because it's not sourced in you, the more you do that, the more you experience the love and the more confident you are that you are held by love all along and that one day love will guide you home. That's what James is talking about. All right, enough nerding out. Aren't you glad we're done nerding out for a moment? All right, let me just spend a couple moments just to tell you why I think these two passages, which are kind of in the, liter the lectionary grab bag for us today, uh, are particularly hopeful and uh, comforting to me. They don't seem like hopeful, comforting verses, but they actually are for me. The reason these two passages are especially comforting and hopeful for me is because like Jesus and like the audience James was addressing, I am deeply human. I am deeply human. And it gives me a weird level of comfort knowing that Jesus was human too. That if Jesus, the one that we're following, the one who you know, gives us the way, if he struggled, if the cultural conditioning um, that impacted his vision and eyes and evidently his mouth, 
was there for him, then that means it's probably there for me too. And I know it if I think about it. I know that my attitudes over years have changed as I've learned and grown, as I've matured. And what I'm seeing here is that that's kind of the way it works, even for Jesus, that he learned and grew as a person. (laughs) Even Jesus' theology expanded. And to me, that's a very comforting reality, that we are all in process. I don't doubt Jesus' faith for a second, but I'm so encouraged that there, there is this reality of us learning and growing that even Jesus himself experienced. There are other references that point to this as well. And if the fact that James had to write this letter to the early Jesus followers who were you know, trailblazers, who were bucking the system, who were putting their lives on the line, they struggled with this stuff. In a weird way, that gives me a lot of comfort. I'm not alone in this human journey of screwing it up and of getting it wrong and needing to listen to the inner voice saying, okay, I blew this one. And when I'm faced with a mirror that is showing me myself and all my ugliness, to look at it and say, yep, that's pretty ugly. I think we can improve on that. I don't know. That just gives me some weird comfort. And they also give me great hope because it means I'm not done yet. It means that the invitation is still there. That if we blow it, I mean, after Jesus blew it here, we didn't see an angel come from God and say, well, sorry, Jesus, we were really looking for a 100% score and you just missed it. (laughs) Sorry, man, the whole thing's off now. You're just going to have to rely on carpentry for the rest of your life. Go ahead and get married, do whatever the heck you want. We'll look for a new Messiah next week. That's not what happened. None of that happened. What did happen, actually, Jesus owns it. He recognizes it. And the Spirit of God is still with him as he goes on to heal. This is so hopeful. Because some of you blew it. Actually, secret, don't tell anybody. You've all blown it. Many times. (laughs) It's embarrassing how many times you've blown it, right? And the good news is, is the grace and the love and the Spirit of God and the power of God working through you has never stopped because you've blown it. It still flows because that's how God works. So take comfort that you're human just like Jesus. You're human just like the audience of James. And take hope that this mess up wasn't the, the deal breaker for Jesus. It wasn't the deal breaker for the audience of James. They kept on cooking because they kept on growing and learning and maturing in faith and love and hope. And that's what we've got. And this little communion thing that we've got, which we're going to do together now, so, you know, get your tasteless wafer out. This is what this reminds us of. This is flesh and blood. You know, for the last few weeks, I skipped uh, part of the lectionary in the Gospel of John because it got creepy, because Jesus spends like this long portion of Scripture talking about how we're not really a part of him unless, he, unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood. It's really gory. And it's just, it's, I understand it theologically, but it's, it's kind of gross. But this we can get our hands on. This is a symbol of the love of God. And this is also a symbol of humanity. And so first we have this little wafer. And we remember that Jesus, 
lived with a body, that he had skin, and he had flesh and bone, and it was broken because he was following God. He was broken because he was standing up for the right thing. It didn't work out great. But he paved the way saying sometimes things are worth living for, things are worth standing up for, suffering for, and even dying for. And when we eat this bread, that's kind of what we're saying as best we can. Take and eat. And then this grape juice, the blood of the grape. Jesus said every time you eat the bread and drink this cup, remember me. And I think part of what he wants us to remember is not just his suffering and the blood that was shed because he was so serious about living and suffering and dying for the good news he came to bring. But I think he also wanted to join us together. That Jesus had blood coursing through his veins that gave him life. And somehow the Spirit of God works with, with our physical nature, our bodies, our blood. And so when we drink this cup, we remind ourselves that we are with Jesus even in our bloodline and with the blood that courses through our veins. So take and drink. So you're human. Great. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. In the image of God, male and female, God created you. You're extraordinary. And you're also human in the sense that you mess it up sometimes. But it's not the game changer. It's an opportunity for you to listen to the voices that are around you, that look in the mirrors and choose to grow. That's our invitation for the rest of our life. And what a beautiful invitation it is. Because that means we don't have to stay stuck where we are. We can continue to grow and mature and deepen in our love and our hope and who we're called and created to be. Let's stand together and we'll close together with the Lord's Prayer, which is our model prayer. Remember that this Lord's Prayer is really meant to be a way of praying, not just magic words that somehow get God to do things. So let's say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming on this beautiful holiday weekend. We hope you had a great experience and we will see you next week. Thanks a lot.